and John. We're going to be in the gospel accounts. So remember, the gospel accounts say someone is here right now. The Old Testament says someone's coming. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John say someone's here right now. The whole rest of the New Testament says someone's coming again. And so we're in the someone's here right now, looking at the person and work of uh, Jesus Christ. And so we're going to be in John chapter 3. As you're opening up there this morning, I don't know if you saw an interview or heard an interview that happened uh, a little over two years ago now. It's hard to imagine that that much time has elapsed, but it was an interview between John MacArthur and Ben Shapiro. And so most of you in in this room maybe know who these two names are, John MacArthur and Ben Shapiro. John MacArthur is a well-known Reformed Baptist pastor, been the pastor of a church for, God, decades. Uh, He's also a well-known speaker and author, really gifted guy. And then Ben Shapiro is a well-known political podcaster, uh, speaker, but he's also an Orthodox Jew. And so you have this Reformed Baptist pastor and this Orthodox Jew meeting together. And as they're talking about a, a variety of things, they end up talking about the topic of religion and Christianity. Shapiro, you may know, he's incredibly smart. He was a, he is a, was and I guess continues to be. He was a legitimate child prodigy, unbelievably smart. And he invited John MacArthur onto his long form interview called the Sunday Special, where they just he invites someone on and they just talk for over an hour and just hit the record button. It's a it's a fascinating conversation. And if you've ever listened to Shapiro's show, that you know that he speaks a mile a minute. Some of y'all accuse me of that as well, speaking a lot, a lot of words per minute. Uh, But in this particular interview, it was interesting because he only asked a few questions, and Ben Shapiro actually listened for the majority of the time while MacArthur spoke. And again, the interview was well over an hour long. And what MacArthur did was basically share the gospel with Shapiro throughout the interview. And in one particular segment, he exegeted Isaiah 53, which is the suffering servant, for Shapiro and pointed out how that passage points to Christ. And he also referenced the New Testament book of Hebrews multiple times. Now, to the casual listener to this podcast, most people would think that MacArthur was just preaching to the choir. Because they think that Shapiro is the last guy who needed to hear MacArthur talk about Isaiah 53. I mean, of all the people in the world, Shapiro, you would think, has a, an obvious grasp on Isaiah 53 and also probably the original Hebrew language. Shapiro is sharp, he's smart, he's influential, he knows his stuff. But MacArthur knew that Shapiro was missing the larger point. And what he basically said, MacArthur, a quote from that, he said, the distinction between Judaism and Christianity is what we do with Jesus Christ. Bingo. Yet even after MacArthur kept sharing the gospel with Shapiro over the course of an hour, you could tell that Ben never quite connected the dots between the Old Testament and the New Testament. John MacArthur's like, don't you see, when you look at this passage, it basically reads like a biography of the ministry of Christ. Don't you see how this points forward? And you could tell that they were just talking past one another. It's really interesting. As we look at this text this morning, 2,000 years ago, another really smart and capable man came to Jesus at night and conducted an interview with him. He was influential, he was wealthy, and he knew his stuff. But as Jesus answered his three questions, you'll, you'll also see that this man also never quite connected the dots. This man's name was Nicodemus, and as we'll see, he had a hard time with the phrase that we've grown familiar with, especially in the South, and that phrase is born again. 
Now, over the years, this phrase has become to be associated with a certain type of person that's been caricatured in TV and movies and cartoons. And maybe you've heard the caricature or seen the caricature of a born-again Christian as this, the caricature that's presented a lot of times in TV and movies is this ultra-conservative, hyper-fundamentalist, ignorant, uneducated, patronizing, judgmental person who blindly gives money to TV preachers. Maybe some examples of this, maybe like Ned Flanders, if you've ever seen The Simpsons. You know, Ned Flanders is always the guy that's like coming over and trying to straighten The Simpsons out, seen as judgmental. Maybe if you saw kind of the classic Saturday Night Lives, Dana Carvey did The Church Lady, where he would dress up and, well, isn't that special? You know, maybe it's Satan, you know, and kind of give that smarmy kind of look down your nose. Another person is someone like Cousin Eddie from Christmas Vacation. It's Dave Latham. I had to give a Christmas vacation quote in there. <laughs> so it's like Cousin Eddie. You know, that's kind of the caricature that you see, right? This kind of judgmental, kind of super fundy person, you know. And a survey, I actually heard Tim Keller mention this uh, this past week as I was just kind of listening. And he said a survey years ago found that this, this is the last type of pers- person that people want as their neighbors. <laughs> oh, ouch. The last person that people want as their neighbor is like a born-again Christian because that's the caricature that's out there, right? And so as we read the passage, I want us to, to think about the question. So if that's the caricature, what does Jesus actually teach about the new birth? How is it different from the caricature that you might have in your mind about what it means to be a born-again Christian? If that's the caricature, okay, well, what does Jesus teach about the new birth? And are there any differences there? I want you to have that in your mind as we go to the text. Let's look at John chapter 3. We're actually going to start at John chapter 2 in verse 23 and go into John chapter 3. So look look with me at John chapter 2 verse 23. Let's give attention to the reading of God's word. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people. And needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. And this man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. And Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, You must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know, and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony." If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who has descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord does indeed stand forever. I'm thankful for that, and I hope you are as well. Let's pray and ask the Lord's help. 
as we look to this text. Please pray with me. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that every bit of it's true. And as we come to this passage, O Lord, we pray that you would give us humility as we sit at your feet and learn from you. Speak to our hearts, O Lord. Thank you that you're not hiding from us. You have given us your word. And Lord, we long to hear you this morning. Change our hearts, we pray, and we ask these things in Christ's precious name. Amen. All right, back in the first century, around the time of Christ, a Greek philosopher named Plutarch posed a question in his essay, The Symposiacs, that was built upon the same question that Aristotle had discussed almost 500 years before. So Aristotle asked the question, Plutarch, 500 years later, is still dialoguing with that question. And that, same, that very same question still puzzles people to this very day. So think about it. This question's been around for thousands of years, and it still puzzles us. And you're like, what in the world is that question? The question is, which came first, the chicken or the egg? That's the question. You would imagine that somebody had to ask it originally. And as we go back in time, we think Aristotle was the one who actually asked us a version of that question. It still puzzles us today. A theologically another which-comes-first type question still has scholars, pastors, congregants wrestling to this very day. And the question is, which comes first, faith or regeneration? Which of those comes first? So like, which comes first, the chicken or the egg? Which comes first, faith or regeneration? Now, as we've seen, this passage speaks about being born again, and hopefully we'll answer that theological question that we talked about just a second ago. But as we think about the new birth that Jesus describes, I want us to ask two questions about it. And these are going to be our two main points if you're a note-taking type of person. We're going to ask two questions about the new birth. Number one, what is it? What is the new birth? Number two, how do you receive it? So the new birth, what is it? How do you receive it? Those are going to be our two questions this morning. So let's dive right in. Let's look at that first point. The new birth, what is it? As we look at in verse 1, our passage begins, we see Nicodemus coming to Jesus at night, and we're told that he was a man of the Pharisees and a ruler of the Jews, and he was a member of the Sanhedrin, who was one of the ruling elders of the Pharisees. So if you can imagine, when you talk about someone who is in Congress, the Congress is the House of Representatives and then also the Senate. And so we think about this, what Nicodemus, the best kind of way to think about him is he is a senator. There is a smaller kind of group within the larger group, and Nicodemus was one of those. And we also assume that John was with him and witnessed this encounter in classic John fashion as he writes these things down. He doesn't really include himself or his name, but we'd imagine that John was with him and was able to write some of this stuff down. And we see Nicodemus coming to him at night, and there's plenty of debate about, you know, was he trying to do it in secret, or was he just a really busy guy, and this was the only time that he could do it, or he, anyway, what he wanted to do is just get a little time with Jesus and ask some questions about it. And again, as we're comparing the cultural understanding of being, quote-unquote, born again to what Jesus teaches about it, straight away you see that Nicodemus does not fit the caricature, does he? He is an expert in the Old Testament. He would have been an expert in Old Testament theology and Old Testament law. This is a guy that he's well-connected. He's powerful. He's not the Cousin Eddie type, is he? He's not the Ned Flanders type. Nicodemus is a smart, well-connected guy. And so he comes to him and is asking these questions. And he comes to Jesus at night and wanted to have a private conversation with Jesus. But some commentators, which I thought was interesting, also noted that night throughout John's gospel is also associated with spiritual darkness. And when John talks about night, he's also somehow alluding to a time of spiritual darkness, and that could be going on here as well. 
In verse 2, we see Nicodemus coming and addressing Jesus respectfully as rabbi, even though it was known among the Pharisees that Jesus had not received any formal religious training. We'll see this in John 7, 15. They're like, who is this guy? Who is this Jesus? We haven't seen him in our rabbinical school or seminary or whatever it is, but he still addresses Jesus respectfully as rabbi. And what he's doing here is he is acknowledging that Jesus was different because of the signs and miracles he had performed. And the plural noun, you see there, signs, suggests that Jesus may have performed other miracles in Jerusalem that were not recorded. But these all attest to him being sent by God. And one of the chief functions of miracles in the New Testament was to validate the messenger, the messengers of divine revelation, these agents that God sent. Think about the apostles. God gave them the gift of these signs and miracles to validate that they were genuine apostles. They were the real deal. And so like last week, the Pharisees demanded that Jesus show them a sign as validation. Remember, he comes and clean, clears the temple out, and the Pharisees come to him and say, basically, who are you? Show us a sign to prove that you are who you say you are. And then Jesus makes this reference to tear down this temple in three days. I'll build it, I'll build it up. He references himself as that sign. But we see this pattern of someone coming and saying, show us a sign to validate that you are who you say you are. And we see that pattern again. Nicodemus was probably thinking when he looked at Jesus, this is another Old Testament prophet like Moses. Remember John the Baptist had come on the scene, kind of prophet-like. Maybe he was thinking, maybe this other guy's like another one of these prophets. Maybe he's like this, this second coming of Moses. But the thing that he was not thinking, obviously, is this is the Messiah. He's thinking maybe just another Old Testament prophet, but not, you know, the Messiah. In verse 3, Jesus responds to Nicodemus' statement. We see here, remember in, in chapter 2, verse 24, it says, Jesus knew the hearts of people, and he knew the hearts of those who were coming, basically looking for a sign. They're just looking for a sign. And Jesus responds to Nicodemus' statement in verse 3, and he uses a phrase that, um, we don't probably go around saying, truly, truly, I say to you, listen to me. But in the Greek, it's amen, amen. And so what it means is basically, listen, this is absolutely true and very important. Mark this down carefully. He's saying, okay, I want you to really listen to me here. What I'm about to tell you is true. Really listen up. That's what Jesus is saying. And he says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. We get a theological statement from Jesus. Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now notice the word unless. There is a necessary condition to see the kingdom of God. What is the necessary condition to be able to see the kingdom of God? It is being born again. And the Greek word again is the Greek word anothen. And another way you can translate it is from above. So he said, one must be born from above. Unless one is born from above, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Here's what Herman Bovink said in his really big, huge, helpful book called The Wonderful Works of God, which, shockingly enough, is a condensed version of his like four or five volume massive thing. He said, And so in one gesture, he, speaking of Jesus, cuts off in Nicodemus all consideration of human merit and of pharisaical law-keeping as a means to the kingdom. And look in verse 4. Similar to the Pharisees not connecting the dots last week, remember when Jesus said, this is, tear down this temple in three days, I'll build it up. And they're like, it's taken 46 years to build the temple. You're going to say you can do it in three days? And they totally missed the point, right? 
In verse 4, you can see Nicodemus kind of flabbergasted by what he heard. And he said to him, how can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter in the second time into his mother's womb and be born? Similar to Shapiro not connecting the dots with MacArthur, Nicodemus is taken back by his answer and asked a follow-up question that could kind of be considered snarky. He's basically saying, what a ridiculous idea. You have to be born again? How does that work? If you're so smart. And so Jesus offers further clarification in his response. Look at what he says in verses 5 and 7. Again, we see truly, truly. Okay, so Nicodemus, listen up. What I'm telling you is true. Listen up. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless, there's the word, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I say to you, you must be born again. In verse 7, the word you there is actually plural. So he says, hear me when I say, y'all need to be born again. He goes from the individual you, Nicodemus, to the larger y'all, O Pharisees, y'all need to be born again. Interesting. Now many read New Testament baptism into water and the Spirit, but Ezekiel 36, 25-27, which is the Valley of the Dry Bones, is a more likely reference given Nicodemus' deep Old Testament training and background. Remember, Nicodemus comes, he's a Pharisee, he's trained in the Old Testament. And he says, you need to be born of water and the Spirit. Nicodemus was not thinking New Testament baptism. His mind would have immediately gone Old Testament. And so Ezekiel 36, 25 to 27, what does that passage say? I'm glad you asked. Thankfully, I have it written down. Ezekiel chapter 36, verses 25 to 27, here's what it says. Remember, valley of dry bones. It says, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness. And from all your idols, I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart, and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh, and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you, and cause you to walk in my statutes, and be careful to obey my rules. Now think about what Jesus is doing here. He said, y'all need to be born again. Basically what he's doing is he is saying to all of the Pharisees, y'all need to be born again. He's calling them dry bones. You, oh oh, Nicodemus, as a stand-in for this kind of larger group, y'all need to be born again because you're dry bones. You think that got Jesus in trouble with the religious authorities of the day? Yes. Yes, it did. Remember, the Jews prided themselves on being the blood-related descendants of Abraham, and so physical birth and lineage was a huge deal. Remember, we've constantly said, you look back and kind of the, the, the closest analog we can get to this Jewish way of thought is like in the South we say, who are your people? Who are you related to? How does Matthew's gospel begin? He's writing primarily to a kind of a Jewish background audience. How does he begin his gospel? With a genealogy. Abraham had Isaac, and Isaac had, Dave, had Jacob, and Jacob, and he goes on down and he ends up with Jesus. He says, you see Jesus? He's blood related to Abraham. It's a big deal. And now Jesus is referring to a new birth that is completely divorced from physical birth and lineage as a descendant of Abraham. He's talking about a spiritual rebirth. It has nothing to do with flesh and blood. It has to come from above. Again, here's what Bob Inc. said. A seed is planted in the heart out of which an entirely new person comes up. I wish I could write stuff like that. And a seed is planted in the heart out of which an entirely new person comes up. 
The application point as we think about this, and we all have to come to grips with, is no one is born a Christian. No one is born a Christian. Scripture tells us that we are born sinners who are also born under the wrath of God. Romans 3 talks about this and says that we need a new heart. Just because your parents were or are Christians does not make you a Christian by default. Just like just because you go to church on a Sunday morning does not automatically make you a Christian. You know, you may have heard just because you go to McDonald's doesn't automatically make you a Big Mac. Just because you go to church on a Sunday morning doesn't automatically make you a Christian. Your rear end can be in a pew while your heart is far from the Lord. Your rear end can be in a pew and you are still living in open rebellion against the Lord. So if the flesh, remember we've talked about this before, the Greek word is sarx, remember? The word became flesh and dwelt among us, guts, real things. So you know, if our flesh talks about, uh, Paul when he uses it, talks about our sinful state and our natural state. If the flesh cannot produce redemption on its own, it needs to be acted on from outside by something more powerful than itself. Okay, that makes sense. So, this is where we answer the question, which comes first? Faith or regeneration? We're going to answer that question. That's our second point. Okay, new birth, what is it? Comes from above. Not through bloodline, lineage, any of that kind of stuff. It's the spiritual birth. That's what it is. Number two, second point, how do we receive it? John chapter 6, verse 63, Jesus said, It is the Spirit who gives life, the flesh. Again, that's that word, sarks. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. Now, do you remember what God promised in Ezekiel chapter 36? Do you remember? What did He promise? He said, I'm going to take away the heart of stone. That's dead. I'm going to take away the heart of stone, and I'm going to give you a new heart. And I'm going to wash you, and I'm going to put a new spirit in you, because you're dead. Verse 8. Jesus uses a word play between the Greek word pneuma and the Hebrew word ruach, which is breath, wind, spirit, to get his point across. The spirit cannot be controlled by humans, and it goes wherever it wishes, but you can see its effects. So, how does the new birth come? Through the spirit. Through the work of the Spirit. Who does the Spirit act upon? People who are dead in their sin, who are dry bones. Romans chapter 8, verses 7 through 8. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So why does the Spirit need to act this way? Simply because spiritually dead people can't save themselves. They can't. They need a new heart. They need a new birth. They need regeneration before they can even see the kingdom of God, much less put their faith in it. It's the good news of the gospel. Our problem is, some of y'all don't like this when I say this. I get it. Until you see it as the absolute picture of grace. I think we give ourselves way too much credit in the salvation equation. I've talked about this before. That we think, oh, we're so great. God owes us salvation. No, He doesn't. We are dead in our sin and our trespasses. You have to come to grips with those passages that the Scripture clearly defines who we are. God is holy, 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 and we are what? Yes, we are not, not, not. We are spiritually dead. 
all the way dead. Not kinda, not Princess Brad, he's only mostly dead. Magic Max, anybody? Okay, some of y'all with me. We are all the way spiritually dead in our sin. What can dead people do? Nothing. So, what makes them live again? They need to be acted on from outside. They need a new heart put in them. They need a new spirit put in them. Are they standing around going, how do I get this new heart? How do I get this new spirit? No! They have to be given it. It's the good news of the gospel. If you're here and you're trying to cling on, if you don't like the way that sounds, I totally get it. I hated it too. Because what it meant is I had to admit that I'm a wreck. I had to admit that I can't save myself. I can't do it. I had to admit that. Oh, it's so hard. But once you admit it, then the sweetness of the gospel comes rushing in. Why should I gain from his reward? I cannot give an answer, but this I know with all my heart. His wounds have paid my ransom. Once that hits, it changes everything. It changes absolutely everything. So, which comes first, faith or regeneration? Regeneration. Regeneration precedes faith. Don't believe me? Here's what a smart guy said who's now with Jesus, R.C. Sproul. He said, we tend to think of the new birth as the whole new Christian life instead of the very first step. The very essence of Reformed theology is encapsulated in the little phrase, regeneration precedes faith. You want to know a paradox? Here's a gospel paradox for you. The bad news is also the good news. It's a paradox. The bad news is also the good news. The bad news and the good news simultaneously is you can't save yourself. It's awful news, but awesome news at the same time. Spiritually dead people can't create faith. It's good news that the salvation equation is not dependent upon us working up enough faith to kick it into gear. You don't do 99% of the work and then God tops you off with the last little 1%. Dead people can't even do 1%. God does it all to the praise of His glorious grace. Y'all are with me this morning. I like this. I'm out to preach. But I'm saying when you think about this, as you're trying to just stare the gospel in its face and all of its glory, we are so apt to try to reserve some of the credit for ourselves, right? If you are spiritually dead, lost in your sin, then Jesus has to do it all. And we say, praise you, Lord, for all that you have done. This is why the gospel is such good news. Jesus didn't come to make good people better. He came to make dead people live. It's like a man seeing a dead, rusty car in the woods and setting his love on it. I, I drive home every day, and, and near my house, you look off, and especially when the leaves are gone this time of year, you look, and there's two rusty car bodies sitting in the woods. And I see those things, I'm like, ugh. How cool would that be to fix that thing up? And then I realized that like, it would take so much money, I don't even want to think about it. But you look at it, it's like a guy, it's like a you know, guy, man, woman, whatever, who really, who's like a car person, and they see that dead, rusty car in the woods, and they just love it because they can see the end result of that future work of restoration, and they chose to set their love upon it to, and then make a full commitment to do whatever is necessary to bring it back to life just because they love it. The gospel, ladies and gentlemen, you're the dead, rusty car. That's you. You're like, oh, I don't like that. I'm sorry. 
You're the dead, rusty car. I'm the dead, rusty car. We are the dead, rusty cars. And God has chosen to set his love upon us and say, I'm going to do whatever is necessary, whatever is necessary to bring you back to life. I'm going to do whatever it takes. Y'all about to make me preach. Here's the thing. It's incredible news that the Spirit, according to the sovereign will of God, comes rushing into a sinful, dead heart bound for hell and hostile towards God and then gives that heart the gifts of faith and repentance and justification and adoption and sanctification and mercy and forgiveness and grace and all of it's undeserved, every bit of it. Look at verse 9. Even with all of that, Jesus, Nicodemus says, how can these things be? He misses it. He misses the whole point. He missed the deeper truth. He missed the Messiah that was standing right in front of him. He missed the whole point of his educational background. This guy spent years learning about this coming Messiah, and he's, he could reach out and touch him, and he missed it. Look at verses 10 through 12. Jesus said, Are you not the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we've seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? What a crushing indictment. The big idea is that Jesus had the full authority to speak about eternal truths because he came from the very presence of God. He refers to himself as the Son of Man. We talked about this a couple weeks ago, that promised Messiah. The promised one who's going to come. The son of man who's coming. In this moment, Nicodemus missed the whole point. But as we'll see later in John's gospel in chapter 19, I believe Nicodemus came to understand who Jesus really is as we see him bringing 75 pounds of spices to help bury Jesus. It's the only two things we know about Nicodemus. This and then later he helps put Jesus in the tomb. It's amazing. Look at verses 13 and 14. Jesus points to his incarnation. Remember, he's fully God and fully man. And he also points to his mission. And what is that mission? To be lifted up and hung between heaven and earth. Why? Verse 15. Verse 15. That whoever believes in him may have eternal life. What was the mission? To be hung between heaven and earth so that whoever believes in him could have eternal life. Do you trust in Christ this way this morning? I'm almost done. Hang with me. Do you trust in Christ this way this morning? Is the Spirit working in your heart today? Do you truly believe that you were dead in your sin? Or maybe for the first time, being able to admit, I am spiritually dead. Do you truly believe that you need a Savior because you realize, maybe even for the first time, that you can't save yourself? If you're a Christian here this morning, I've got some questions I'm asking myself. Are you still trying to steal some of the credit from Christ by claiming that you had anything to do with your salvation? Are you missing the glory of the gospel of grace because you're too focused on your perceived good works and merit before God? Are you still clinging to your quote-unquote, my faith? Are you still clinging to that when you should be praising God for the saving faith that He gave you? when he called you from spiritual darkness into life. You see, if all of this is true, we don't get to keep even just like a sliver of it for ourselves. Not a bit. 
And you think, oh, you Reformed people are really theological. I know, because this matters. The gospel is never going to be good news to you if you feel like you're a good person that Jesus kind of topped off a little bit. It's never going to be good news for you. The gospel is going to be the best news you've ever heard when you really realize where you stood prior to Christ calling your name. That you are the old dead rusty car. Missing a battery, missing everything. Just a rusty old dead shell. And then Jesus did whatever it took. He was hung between heaven and earth for you by grace. And you didn't deserve a bit of it. And you say, oh Lord, if that's really true, that's a reason to get up in the morning, isn't it? That's worth sharing with others. How do we know, how do you know that you've been born again? i.e. regenerated by the Spirit. How do we know if we've gotten this? Here's what Kent Hughes said, and I thought it was helpful. He said, this encounter with Nicodemus is relevant for us today. The term born again has been pirated, emptied of its meaning, dragged through the gutter, and given back to us minus its power. Today, when a person says he or she is born again, we cannot be sure of what he or she means. The mere use of the phrase tells us almost nothing. The truth, however, is that when one is really born again, there is a radical repentance, a radical work of the Spirit in that person's life, and a radical change so that the whole being is brought into new life. The results are discernible. They can be seen. So Jesus has set down for all subsequent generations that the radical change, the new birth, is possible only when he takes our infected natures upon himself, bears the venom, and then imparts a new nature for us, And we rejoice in 2 Corinthians 5.17. If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. Behold, the old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All right, I'll close with this quote from Sproul. He said, A person must be changed by God. The disposition of the heart, which by nature does not want to do God's bidding, must be altered by the Holy Spirit. Man's natural tendency is to flee from the presence of God and have no affection for the biblical Christ. Therefore, if you have in your heart today any affection for Christ at all, it is because God, the Holy Spirit, in His sweetness, in His power, in His mercy, and in His grace, has been to the cemetery of your soul and has raised you from the dead. And so you are now alive to the things of Christ and you rejoice in the kingdom into which He has brought you. Isn't that good news? I know we look at that and go, oh, I don't like that. Oh, but man, once it hits, once it gets in your bones, it changes absolutely everything. I will preach this till I am blue in the face. And y'all know that by now. Because it, it matters. And when you realize that, do you catch that little phrase that God has been to the cemetery of your soul and has given you a new heart? And we think, well, that's not fair. What about this? What about that? The fact that he did that with you wasn't fair. Remember, we talked about the fact that God's judgment and his wrath make total sense, don't they? I'm holy. You're not. Obey me. Cross me in this way. You're going to get it. That makes total sense. What doesn't make sense is his grace. It doesn't make any sense. Why in the world would you ever do this? Why in the world would you ever show your love in this way? Why would you ever be so gracious and kind when I was a wretch and a rebel? Why? Why? That's when we get to stand at the that's when we get to stand in awe of Christ, which is a great place to be, is it not? Regeneration precedes faith. This is the best news ever. Amen. All right, let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you that it's true. And thank you for your grace and your mercy. 
Thank you for this scene with Nicodemus where we can, again, just look and wonder and marvel at the gospel message of mercy and grace that's been extended to us. Lord, when we really do sit and we think about it, the big question that we should be asking is, Why, O oh Lord, why me? If you're as holy as the Bible says that you are, and I'm as sinful as the Bible says that I am, why didn't you kill me in my sleep last night? But you didn't, because you're gracious, and you're kind, and you're on the move, O oh Lord, and we are thankful that you are continuing, continuing by your grace, to continue to redeem and to save and to call those whom you have written their name in the Lamb's book of life from the very beginning, that you are on the move. And so what we're doing this morning is not in vain, because you are with us. And so, Lord, speak to us, remind us of the sweetness of the gospel, and help us to share that good news, the best news. Lord, it's hard to imagine that the best thing that will ever happen to us has already happened at the cross. And help us to stand in awe of that. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.